0: thank you thank you brother good morning Uh, if you will let's just uh, pray together with me just to get started father we are so grateful for this church and for your work most of all for Jesus Christ who is why we're here so bring us into that fellowship this morning use the words to be your words may the Holy Spirit speak through and to us today challenge us to be different may we not be the same when we leave as when we came Hear our prayers, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be with you. It's good to see you. I'm going to jump into some of just an introduction. Uh, We're going to bring up some slides. We've been talking about this thing called Wholehearted. Uh, It is a series that we've been doing, and we're going to run that the rest of the year. And there are a scripture that we really build this off of, Deuteronomy 6. We're going to throw it up on the screen here in just a second. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. What if we live like this with all our heart and with all our soul and with all your strength? What would we look like as a church if we did love God that way? And there are five areas that we're looking at out of this. And one is uh, we've talked about several of these. Today, I'm doing on number two, Offered Hospitality and Care for the Poor. But these are the five areas that we're really trying to target worldviews. I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy. We're going to, Caitlin has these. Have we passed those out yet? We haven't, have we? No. Ma'am? At the end. end. Okay. So we have made for you what's called a mezuzah today. Uh, And I'm going to take 30 seconds to explain that. It's actually a Jewish uh, scripture box that they put on their doorframe. Most Jewish homes have them in all their doorframes except the bathroom. I don't know why that, but uh, that's where you spend a lot of your time. You think that's where you need Jesus, right? So, uh, But they're on all the door frames. So we in Block Ministries, all of our homes, we give these out, but we, we put them on the door. They, they go back to that passage of Scripture where it says, write these things on your doorposts. It's that idea, and we have put this Scripture together for you today. Each of your families you just need one per family, so when you leave today, please get one of these. Put them on your door. It explains how to do that. It explains what it's for. And here's the beauty of it. It is the idea that that the word of God is being poured out in your home at all times. When you leave, the Jewish family will usually kiss it and quote the scripture. When they return home, they kiss it again, touch the box, and quote the scripture. It just keeps the word of God flowing into your home. We want you to have that. So that will be for you when you leave today. It will build on this theme and build the idea and continue that in this, hopefully, your life for years to come. Uh, you do have to nail it to your doorframe, though, okay? So I'll let you take care of that. Lastly, <laughs> lastly I wanted to share and say a thanks to you. Last, uh, earlier this year, I believe, you guys made a donation to Block Ministries for a place that we have called the Homestead. We're going to show a video video of that. This is 20 acres we have in Mount Orb. This is a house that we are developing right now. By the end of the year, we should be taking young girls in, 17 and under, that are sex trafficked. You are a part of that process. So this 20 acres has a home on it. It will have five beds for five girls. Uh, That will be the second house in the state of Ohio. There's only one other home for these girls in the state of Ohio. We know, at least in Cincinnati, over the last year, 200 girls were treated for sex trafficking in Children's Hospital. We don't have enough beds. We're starting with five. As you can see, we have 20 acres. We can build more homes, but we're not there yet. We're going to start. So you are a great part of that. We want to say thank you for that. That's moving forward. We'll keep you up on what happens with that. So thank you very much. All right, we good? That was a 40-second video. We did all right. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with Scripture. Caitlin's going to come up and read. We're going to start today with Luke chapter 10. What I'm going to ask you to do is if you'll stand for the reading of the Word of God. It will be on the screen as well, Luke 10. And let's hear the words of the Lord.
1: A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise.
0: The word of the Lord. I want you to say this phrase with me before you sit down. Go and do likewise. Let's say it together. Go and do likewise. One more time. Go and do likewise. They say if you say it three times, you'll never forget it. Here we go. Go and do likewise. Thank you. Grab a seat. What we're going to end up with is what we're starting with today, and that's the phrase go and do likewise. Whatever we talk about today is what the command of the Lord is, and I need to be very clear. What I'm giving you today is not an option. This is a mandate, not from me, but from Scripture. So I need you to understand that going into this, and it's, it's a hard lesson, it's, it is that bold middle ground, okay? We talk about not being left, not being on the right, but this bold middle ground of Jesus, and that is that what we're going to get today is a mandate, not an option for us as believers. I'm getting ready to be very vulnerable to you. What you're about to see, not many people have seen. So please don't laugh. Caitlin's already laughing. <laughs> Caitlin, you may need to leave the room, that's all I'm saying. I'm going to show you a slide here. Yep, there it is. Get it out of your system. You can laugh if you need to. That's me on the right. God love him. My sister, my mom, and my dad. I grew up in central Kentucky on the dairy farm. It's pretty rare that you ever wear this outfit, okay? We were going on vacation. What I need you to understand is my mother is a wonderful lady, and she is a part of the story today. She died in June, 81 years old. But the clothes that you see on us, she made. She made all our clothing, actually. Where we grew up, there weren't stores necessarily around us. I didn't go to, we didn't have a Kroger store that I went to until I was in college. So, I mean, we grew all our own food. We did all that stuff. But if you'll notice, that's all matching stuff, right? I didn't realize that as a child, that I matched my sister. And, and, and my mother. My dad obviously knew that. <laughs> you can tell. Uh, here's another little piece I like. She, on Easter Sunday, my mom would make my dad's suit, my suit, her, her dress, my sister's dress, and yes, even my grandmother who lived next door. And what I did realize again at this age, first of all, that I looked like my sister. And on those special Easter's, I looked just like my grandmother, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was not wearing, you can see how happy he is today, not wearing the same clothes. Pla- <laughs> he also realized he finally got graduated out of that. Then we go on to the next slide. This is a little bit later. This is on my, grand- this is on my mother's 80th birthday. This was what I found out. We threw her this huge 80th birthday surprise. What I realized on that day, which I should have known, being with her all these years, that was the actual first birthday party she'd ever had in her life. And as I look at it this morning, I realize we are still all dressing alike. All right, so (laughs) sometimes you just can't get away from it. That's a gift that keeps on giving right there. My mother was the best case scenario I can give you for what a good Samaritan looked like. The last nine days of her life, we brought her home from the hospital. She quickly, we didn't even know she had cancer. We literally found out. She was eat up with cancer, 81. We had her in the hospital. We put her in hospice immediately. And for the next nine days, we sat with her until she passed. I have been around a lot of death, guys. I have buried a lot of folks, young and old. And I have sat with a lot of people dying. But I'm going to be honest with you, for those nine days... It was a steady stream of people walking into their little house in Tennessee, coming to see her in her last days and telling story after story after story of Good Samaritan, the good neighbor. And I I knew my mom was a great lady. I grew up with her, right? So in our neighborhood, she was the beautician, and the beauty shop was in our house because we were farmers. Everybody came to her, so everybody knew our family. But there was not a person in our neighborhood that she never took care of. We had people eating, sleeping, coming in and out of our house. I'd never met before because they needed a good neighbor. And that's who my mom was. And for our whole life, I saw that. But those last nine days, it was an amazing event from painters that she had hired. as She would say from old women's hair that she had fixed. I said, how old are those women, Mom? You're 82. She goes, They're just old. (laughs) From men that she had fed at the table with her and her husband because he had no place to eat, it went on and on and on. I can't, kids coming in, uh, uh, high school kids coming in, crying over her because of how gifted and loving she was as a neighbor for nine days. And the phrase that we heard over and over again was this, I'd never been loved by anybody as much as her. And as her son, that's awesome. But as a believer, it was a a teaching time for me to say, that's what a good neighbor looks like. Because a good neighbor shares the gospel without even speaking a word, right? And guess what they wanted to know? Why do you do this? And then the gospel gets spoken. My mother was probably the best good neighbor we ever had. And I am going to share with you that that was a mandate of her life. She knew that she had to do that because of what Jesus had done for her. And as a believer, that's why you understand that. There's another scripture I want to share with you, Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is kind to the poor, look at this phrase, lends to the Lord. I love that. Whoever is kind to the poor, he is lending, she is lending to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they have done. There's another passage we're going to read in a minute that talks more about this not being an option but a mandate. The way that you and I are good neighbors, as the good Samaritan was, is what is expected. The law says, do this and live. That's what the lawyer was talking about when Jesus was talking to him. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The law that he was talking about says, if you do this, you will live. But here's what Jesus does to it. He says, grace says, live it and you will do this. Make sense? If you're living by the law, you just do it because you, that's what the law says. Do this and you will live. But if you live by grace, as which is what Jesus is introduced here, he says, if you live it, you will do this. And that is love your neighbor. It just becomes a natural part of who you are. Let's talk about the Good Samaritan real quick. The Good Samaritan is the guy who helps the person that is hurt. Now, I'm not going to get into all the history of this story because we just don't have time this morning, but the, the Samaritan was hated by the Jews. He was low class. You wouldn't touch him. You wouldn't go to his neighborhood. You wouldn't look at them. You wouldn't help them. You wouldn't do anything for them. The Jews... Hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. Get the picture? The priest and the Levite saw the person who was hurt. Now, the person hurt probably was Jewish. Traveling on the road. This area was known as the Bloody Pass. It was a rough stretch of walking. And most people were pretty terrified to go through there. So it was pretty well known that you could be attacked, robbed, whatever, going on this pathway. So the Jews uh, did their business, everybody had to walk this pathway, but the Levite and the priest decided, for whatever reason, not helping this guy. They walked to the other side of the street. Lots of ideas about that. One is the guy could still be alive and somebody could be around that just happened that they might also be attacked, who knows. Probably the fact that if they touch somebody who's unclean, they have to go through a whole process to be clean, to be in the temple, to do their work. So they just crossed on the other side of the road, left the guy to die. The Samaritan, obviously, sees the person who's hurt. And he has compassion on that person. And he starts to reach out, and he does certain things. And we can read all that. We already have. He he dressed the wounds. He put the person on his own animal. He took them to the... And he got help for them, he paid the person, he says, "I'll pay the rest of it." And he went on his way. And so there are four things that the Samaritan did that I need you and me to look at this morning, and here they are. The Samaritan saw him, which everybody did, right? The priest saw him, the Levite saw him, and the Samaritan saw him. But here's what happened next with the Good Samaritan. He had compassion. He immediately acted but it cost him something. Now we're talking about the left and the right today and the bold middle. So here's, let's look at that real quickly. The left says we'll help everybody. Uh, we'll do it. It's a moral thing to do. We're going to do all that until it really costs us something personally. <laughs> then we stop. The right usually says, the one that I work with, talks about we'll help you if you deserve it. If you made bad choices, that's on you. Not helping those who make bad choices helping people who are in bad ways but there's nothing they could have done about it until it cost me something the bold middle the Jesus people that's us those who have the mandate to help will see will have compassion will act and when it costs us something we pay the price yeah that is the bold middle that sets us apart from the rest of the world. The early church that did this in Rome, that set them apart from all the other faiths and belief systems and all that because they helped everybody at no matter what the cost would be. This is why we look different. This is why my mother was different. Believe me, there was a cost. We had no money. If you've never been a farmer, let me help you out. There's no money in it, okay? (laughs) We milked cattle for 30 years and broke even. You tell me that's a good business plan. That's a lot of work. But my mother gave it away. I never seen anybody give stuff away so well because it cost her something to love her neighbor, and that's what she did. It will cost you and me at some point. It will cost us. I promise you, you can't do this without a cost. When we moved to Price Hill, I can't tell you the people who said, what are you doing with your kids? Don't live there. Everybody, from strong Christian leaders to my family, what are you doing? Well, that's the cost sometimes of what you have to do. There'll be cost for you to bring people into your home. What are you doing? You don't know those people that well. Why would you let them live with you? That's a cost of what you do to help somebody get off the street and get into detox may cost you something to buy a bed for them that's going to cost you something and to walk them through that will be a cost to help a family who's going through something that you would hope you would never go through and they need a place to live or they need someone to help walk with them because their family's breaking apart that will cost you something there has to be a cost <clears throat> Don't you dare limit who you help. And don't you dare, as a believer, limit the cost you pay. I'm going to ask Eric and Charlie to sneak up real quick. There are three things I want you to look at that have to do with us paying the price. There can't be any limit to anyone in need. Who is my neighbor? Anyone in need? (laughs) Pretty simple answer. Hard to deal with. What do we do with that? We do something practical, holistic. And I want these guys to share. Something happened a few weeks at their house in Price Hill where they live. Go ahead.
2: Hi. For everyone who doesn't know me, I'm Charlie. Um, that's my dad. But um, So we live in Price Hill. We've lived there as a married couple for six years. We have three kids, and I'm currently pregnant. And um, every year we usually have like two or three kind of like crazy things that happen on the street that we live. And a couple weeks ago, we had one of those instances where um, Eric and I had to put the kids down. We were just watching TV in our living room and heard what I thought was like a bottle rocket. We have kids in our neighborhood who are up till a lot later than we are. So I was like, oh, don't worry about it. And Eric was like, no, it was just one. I don't think that's what it was. So he got up Looked out the window and realized that um, our neighbor, who we have a really good relationship with, her granddaughter's boyfriend, had got shot right in front of our house. And so um, Eric is a nurse. I'm a senior in nursing school. And we immediately were like, we have to get out there and help him. So we went out there. He um, got shot completely through his shoulder, was bleeding everywhere. We didn't know that at the time. We brought him onto our porch as he's bleeding and just kind of assessed his wounds and his situation, I immediately started running around grabbing um, rags and belts and all this stuff to try to get the bleeding to stop. And as we brought them on, the granddaughter was like, hey, they're safe, he's a nurse, they work for us on the hill, they're safe, it's okay. And so we brought them on and then realized that he had been assaulted with a gun, she had been assaulted with a gun, like it was just a very different situation than we had ever experienced before. Um, and we stayed with them until we talked to the police. We waited for the ambulance to arrive, um, and we're just able to be there for that super crisis moment for them, but also a shared experience for us. Um, But after everyone had been taken to the hospital, our porch was (laughs) taped off as a crime scene, and it kind of just settled in of, like, what the heck just happened. And we went back into our house and just... adrenaline was wearing down and we just kind of sat with just this shock of like what is going on and like this is our home and so Eric I'm just going to explain those feelings.
3: Yeah so the following day I (laughs) I was just processing the feelings and I went to work and I was driving home from work and I saw them on the side of the road at their house and I was like oh shoot I need to pull over I need to see them and he's all bandaged up. He had a sling on and her face was so swollen. I was like, I can't even recognize you. And it was just like this super sweet moment that I had with her where she just kept apologizing to me over and over and was like, I'm so sorry that this happened to your kids. And it just gets me emotional because it's like, I'm worried about my kids, but I was worried about her and I was worried about what she was going through and who she was, what she was feeling. And I told her that and she was very emotional and receptive to that. And it was just like this great moment with her. And then something that I think I'm taking away from that, that I've just learned is like, if I wouldn't have been there, if I wouldn't have been in that moment and been in that crisis, I probably would have never, you know, experienced that with her. And I called Dwight the next day and I told him, I said, what happened? And, you know, I'm scared for my kids. Should we leave? Is this worth it? Like, I have a brain. Why am I here? And. Um, I want to protect my kids. And he was like, did the disciples run away from crisis or did they run to it? And I was like, okay, like, here we go. <laughs> but yeah. yep. Thank you, guys. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> By the way, those are my grandkids, too. So I, I do care about them. <laughs> um, we have, I don't know, how many, Steph? 21, thank you. (laughs) 21 grandchildren, most of them live in Price Hill. So I, I do care, obviously, about my family, but here's the issue. When anything happens in history, the true church runs toward the crisis. When it doesn't, things fall apart. Because when it becomes a cost, everybody else is out. The church pays the cost right? Story after story after story of the church paying the cost in crisis to take care and love the neighbor, which is anyone in need. They do something practically, holistic. It's spiritual, mental, physical, emotional. The church is all about all of that. It's not just, I'm going to feed your hunger, I'm going to clothe you, I'm going to house you. It gets much deeper than that, right? It is all that Jesus does. Where do we get that motivation? The world cannot do that. Hear what I'm saying? The world cannot love your neighbor like this. They cannot. They're missing something. And that is the motivation to do that. Where does that come from? I think Jesus uses this story for the same purpose. Think about it. I don't believe I'm adding to scripture here, so help help me out. If you do, call me out. I believe that when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and he says, who was the good neighbor? And he says, he didn't say Samaritan. You notice that he can't can't say that name. (laughs) He can't say Samaritan. It's just they hate him that badly. He says, the one who helped. And Jesus says what? What was the phrase we said at the very beginning? Go and do likewise. How can he go and do likewise? Here's what he's telling the the guy who's asking, the lawyer, the the spiritual guy. Basically, he is saying, you are the one who is lying in the road. I am the one who saves you. And it costs me my life. You see what Jesus is saying? There's no way we can do that without a Savior to begin with. Here's what scripture teaches us. The way that that motivation pushes us to help anyone in need at any time and to run out on your front porch when someone's shot and you got three babies upstairs and the guy's bleeding out. What motivates you to do that is that Jesus did it for you. And you accepted that grace. Once that happens, all bets are off you get to be a good neighbor. (laughs) It's a mandate, not an option. To receive such grace motivates us to give such grace. People say all the time, why would you live in Price Hill? Not because I desire to, because I am called to, because of the grace given to me, I give to my neighbors. Get it? The people on your street, why in the world would you help people you don't even know? because the grace given to you demands that you give the same grace to whoever is in need that becomes your neighbor that's the bold middle that's why Christians look different than the left or the right Jesus is the good samaritan some say it can't be done i i i mean i've heard preachers say this it, it is not being done who who moves into a neighborhood and helps people like that <laughs> You do. There are people doing it. I know them. You know them. The, the issue is not that no one's doing it. The issue is we need more people doing it. We have a full house in here today. Imagine if all this house went out and loved your neighbor as yourself and loved them as the Lord your God with all costs thrown to the wind. What kind of difference would we make? That's what we're talking about this year. What would it look like if we did that with all our heart, mind, and soul? I promise you our neighborhoods would look different. Our neighbors would be loved, the people we haven't even met yet, in ways that they have no idea, and they would wonder why you're willing to pay the cost, and you would get to share the good news. And Jesus would be the focus point. Not me or you. Matthew 25 has a pretty strong statement. I'm not going to read all of it. We're going to read the very end. This is after Jesus is talking about, uh, you saw me hungry, you fed me. You saw me naked, you clothed me. You visited me in prison. Do you, you remember all these stories when you do that? And they said, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I say to you, whatever you did, Not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then he goes on to say, Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did to me. Hear the mandate in that. It's not, it's not when if you wanted to, or I gave you an option, if you felt like it, if you actually knew them, or you had time or you had the means. None of that is mentioned here. It's simply when you did it or when you did not do it, that is the judgment. This is a judgment passage. We can get into the theology of that. This whole passage of Matthew 25 talks about the least of these and what you did or did not do for them. How you were a good neighbor or how you were not. Let me challenge you simply, church, this morning to say to you, if you're not a good neighbor, he will say, I never knew you. I'm not saying that. This is scripture right here. If you were a good neighbor, he said, you did the same thing to me. It is a strong statement for the church to not run away from helping anyone in need. I live on the street, just like you do, in Price Hill. I know most of my neighbors. I like them, some. Some are a headache, but I sure I'm sure I'm a headache to some as well. <coughs> That I hear an amen in the back row that happened to be my wife? I don't know why that is. But the hope is when we do things in our neighborhood, it doesn't matter if I know them or not. We got a call this last week. There's a young girl, two houses down. I've never met the house. We, we're, not, we're not sure. The neighbors met them. Not sure. The girl hasn't gone to school. She's in high school. Hasn't gone to high school for two years. Don't know what's happening in that house. We get a phone call from my neighbor because they know what we do, Billy and Jen. They're not believers. Listen to me. They're not believers. They're good people. They're worried about the young lady. But who do they call? They call someone who knows Jesus. You hear me? They're a little bit of afraid of the cost. Right? They care, but they're a little afraid of what it's going to cost them to get involved. So who do they call? They call the church the Jesus people, and they say, can you help us with her? Absolutely. Let's go figure that out. You see the difference? What happens when the church doesn't show up? The church runs to the crisis. There are plenty of crises out there. You can't miss them because we're running the other way usually. The church runs to the crisis. You talk about great ministry. When you have an opportunity to do ministry is when someone dies, someone's having a a, a baby, someone's in the hospital, somebody's house catches on fire, somebody gets shot, somebody has something terrible happen in their home, a sickness, whatever. You're it. It is an open door for you to do ministry called good neighboring. Don't miss it. You miss it, the door does shut. And you miss the opportunity to love them in the name of Jesus. Why? Because of what Jesus did for you. That's the grace that motivates you. I'm going to do this quick and then we're going to pray together. There's two two stories i got to give you. Father Damien, I've shared with you before, he's the guy, that the priest that went over to Hawaii to work with those who had lepers. I've told you his story. Nobody would go with him. For good reason, they thought that they would catch the leprosy and die, which actually he did and died at age 49. And by the time he had died, most of his face had been eaten away and his hands were gone. But this is how he is described. The apostle to the afflicted, the angel to the castaways. And this this is his statement. I made myself a leper. Listen, I made myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. I have seen interviews of people who were, were lepers with him, uh, actual videos from the 60s and 50s. They were older now because he died. Uh, they were second generation. And so they had talked about the way that he came in and helped them build houses for the first time. They were just put there to die, folks. He came in and said, let's build some houses together because you're living in shanties. Let's learn to dance again. Yeah. He held weddings for these folk. They did parties together. He started church. He did the Lord's Supper with them every week. They became a community, a fellowship of neighbors because why? One guy took the chance to love his neighbor no matter who it was, paid the cost, paid the price because of the motivation of Jesus Christ. He led these people to live, not to die. There is not one person that came from that settlement that didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ because of Father Damien, who was the angel to the castaway. One more lady. She was a Ukrainian woman, born in the 1800s, died in 1945. She was uh, originally known as Elizabeth... Hickney. she went on to be called mother maria of the orthodox church she was a nun but let me describe her life for you a little bit she uh, ran the family business pretty wealthy town she was a mayor of the town she was married twice she was divorced twice she had three children two of which died young she drank she smoked and she was a nun That's the kind of nun I want to hang out with. (laughs) My mother would roll over. But here's what she did. She served the needy women in Paris. She had a home where all women and children in need, all women and children in need, could come. And in World War II, she helped rescue so many Jews, it was countless. She was taken by the Gestapo in 1945 And she was known as a genuine Christian. She was taken to a concentration camp and on March 30th, 1945, Mother Maria died in a gas chamber taking the place of another prisoner who had been chosen ahead of her. You see the cost? Do you see the motivation? Here's what she was known as. (laughs) The saint of the open door. I love these phrases. I mean, that's, if that has to go on my tombstone, that's good, right? I want to be the saint of the open door. I want to be known as the good neighbor. I want to be known as the one who, no matter who you were, what you needed, no matter what the cost, I did my best to neighbor you in the way that God called me to do so. Here we go. Martin Luther King says this phrase. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. That should be what's on our tombstone, right? Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. I would say to you this morning, let's say it together. It's right there. Go and do likewise. Let's say it again. Go and do likewise. One more time because three is good. Go and do likewise.
2: you do it.